On a chilly autumn English morning, two men sat together in a poorly heated Oxford University side room. One was reading from a new manuscript. The other was quietly listening. Tears rolled down the listener's face. The reader was J.R.R. Tolkien. The wet-eyed listener was C.S. Lewis. The manuscript was The Lord of the Rings. Lewis had been the single most powerful encourager of Tolkien's writing, his cheerleader, or literary midwife, helping him give birth on paper to his vision of the Rings trilogy. Lewis described himself as a man not given to what he referred to as embarrassing outward emotional displays. So what moved him to tears as he listened to Tolkien's reading? Because the very nature of great imaginative literature is its power to take us to a place we cannot enter on our own and awaken in us the highest and best which we cannot reach on our own. The writer is not necessarily more aware of what he has written than his audience is. The reason we love the great stories is because they are God-given avenues by which we may enter into realities far greater than our everyday mundane existence can offer. But that's not all it does, or we would only be referring to this description as nothing more than fantasy. No, the great stories don't just tell a tale. They point to realities which are accessible to us and which invite us further up and further in. Now, we need to understand the difference between a myth as the scriptures warn against them, and myth in literature. There are two different meanings of the word myth. When the apostles warn us not to engage in meaningless myths, which only engender strife, they are referring to old wives' tales rooted in superstition and therefore have no value. You see this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 4. 2 Timothy 4, verse 4, Titus chapter 1, verse 14, and 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. But just as the word imagination can be misunderstood as a total negative based on a misunderstanding of the different shades of meanings of the word, so it is with the word myth. The Greek term, though not used positively in the New Testament, still has a positive, larger, more valuable meaning that of a story, but not just any story, one which seeks to provide us a way of grasping concepts that are too large for normal, everyday conversation to comprehend. It was G.K. Chesterton who first drove home the difference between what is imaginary, meaning falsehood or fantasy, and what is imaginative, what he defined as the mind's response to a greater reality, challenging the limitations of mere reason and opening the way to encountering the greater reality. Imaginative stories, quote, show us something without arguing for it, provoking thought rather than answering questions, end quote. Blaise Pascal was not only a great mathematician and scientist, but an apologist for the Christian faith, He said that in his experience, argument by means of reason may win a battle of the brains, but may not win anyone's heart. He said, quote, don't seek to win an argument, seek to win a heart. 
Make them hungry, not angry. Paint a picture of reality which causes your opposition to wish it was true. Then point them to that reality by the use of the good of reason. Every true artist feels that he is touching transcendent truth, that his images are shadows of things seen through the veil, Chesterton said. An artist paints a landscape. It's an accurate image of the actual view out the window. But what is it that he is also able to portray in his painting of that landscape that awakens emotion? Why can a musical movement placed behind a motion picture take that film image into a completely different emotional place than it was before there were the movements of chords and the sounds of violins? Our own story, our daily mundane private existence, yes, that one that you're living right now while you're listening to this message, is also a part of something grander than what it appears. From heaven's viewpoint... From heaven's view of our landscape, what does our life appear to be? Is it mere trees and shrubs? Or do we also have an element of magical wonder and meaning happening in our daily existence, which is known only to God, but can be comprehended at times by us if we learn to see with and not just through our eye, as William Blake wrote. This life's dim window of the soul distorts our view from pole to pole and leads you to believe a lie when you see with, not through, the eye. What does Blake mean? We were meant to see with our eyes and discern what we see with our conscience, respond with our heart, our spirit. Godlessness would reduce us and everything around us to the sum of mere parts. So you hear the scoffing skeptic say of all sorts of mysteries and beauties, oh, I can see through all that. He means he can reduce everything down to the sum of its parts. Love is only biology. Giving is only in order to get. Everything is stripped of its beauty, goodness, and meaning. Then with nothing left but ruined parts... The skeptic claims a great victory over fools who worship or love or dream. What he wins from his so-called victory is a hole in the ground. Nothing else he has or achieves or understands will escape that final hole. This he calls triumph over superstition. But for those who humble themselves to see with and not through the eye, Their vision is not a hole below, but the hole, W-H-O-L-E, above. They will not only see what they are looking at, but they will see everything else clearly because of what they're looking at. C.S. Lewis's famous story of his experience in a tool shed explains this. Quote, I was standing in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, the beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by the beam. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. 
I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on branches of trees outside, and beyond that, ninety-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Once we learn to see our lives with the Holy Spirit-inspired eyes through what we may call mythic imagination, this causes us to view our own life in a new and more meaningful way. Alistair McGrath says, quote, A veil is lifted, a door opened, a curtain is drawn aside. And once we see on this level, we can never return to a shallow, mundane view of ourselves or our circumstances. This kind of seeing is rooted in Hebraic tradition and poetry. God is not a shepherd with a rod and a staff, or is he? If you say he's not, what are you really saying? Yet many Christians are so besotted with an anti-imaginary legalism that when they read or hear any reference to the poetic, they think, if they don't say, well, that's all just baloney, fantasy, childish. Most popularly, they'll say, it's unbiblical. This kind of wrong-headedness is far closer to the skeptic than to the scriptures. They both can just see right through and reduce everything beautiful to the sum of its parts, with nothing left but the parts. There's a line, for instance, in one of Elizabeth Googe's novels, which always struck me, where she describes the passing nighttime shadows over her house as, quote, great dark wings. There's a million such images in literature. That's what literature is. It's a very shallow and boring thing to blow off such imagery as mere childish illusion. We not only miss the meaning, we miss the joy and the fun. What if we decided that all road signs are to be ignored because we got to the bottom of it all, and after examination, we discovered that the signs were made of metal and plastic held together by screws and covered in nothing but paint? They were put together at a local sign company and stuck up on the side of the road by mere local workmen. See? No message there, just the meaningless parts placed by nobodies for no purpose. We've seen right through it all, and now we know it's all merely the sum of its parts. Well, how foolish. Of course, common sense does warn against fanciful inflation of everything around us as being a sign. You've, know, you've been around people like that, where everything, everything has got some mystery or supernatural connection to it. As always, reality lies somewhere in the middle between silly superstition on one end and foolish skepticism on the other. Most in this culture err on the side of skepticism. We're always looking to see what is, quote, really behind the signs, and when we discover it is metal, paint, and plastic placed by a mere workman, we then know it has no greater meaning. So we empty out our world of all mystery till the universe is emptied of all transcendence. When the symbols die, we die too. It is not self-aggrandizing egotism or fantasy to believe that there is a messenger behind the signs 
or that our little lives are truly being made much larger, not because of us, but because we are called into a far greater reality beyond us by the one who is greatest of all. Our smallness does not inhibit him in calling us up, and because he is the one who sets the true value on all things, if he calls you up to a greater place, then, my friend, you are now greater because of that call, if you heed it. Because we are known of him and called by him, that automatically makes us far greater than we are in ourselves and our lives far richer with meaning and eternal purpose than it could produce on its own. So the moving shadows over our houses are great wings, and the mere shaft of light in our tool shed comes from the very S-O-N himself. Such awareness of greatness behind the mundane living of our lives both calls us up and humbles us at the same time. Once we see the mystery behind the daily grind, once we understand there is no such thing as a mere mortal, that all of us are destined to become, as Lewis said, either a being so wonderful we would be tempted to worship it, or a monster so terrible as to be only found in a nightmare, we then begin to see each other and treat all of life with far greater respect and live with far wiser purpose and determination. We stop killing time and start filling time with living, with life. After this kind of awakening, we become unable to ever just go back to boredom of any kind. As Frodo says, after the adventures of the ring are behind him and he's back in the Shire, how does one pick up the pieces of a former life? Reading such stories such myths in the right sense of the word, are seen by some as nothing more than childish time-wasting. But for others, with eyes to see and heart to grasp, it is a life-transforming revelation that calls them upward and onward to their truer, higher selves. And speaking of childish, maybe we should reconsider the words of Jesus about children. On at least one level, he might be addressing this very subject we're on right now. Quote, Unless you become like one of these little ones, you cannot see the kingdom. What if he means not so much that you can't go to heaven, but that you can't see it, experience it, discern its meaning or its invisible presence? Stories are meant to point us symbolically to places where we are meant to eventually actually go. And as I have said several times before in this ongoing study of the true imagination, why is it we are crammed full of images and ideas that pull us down into the gutter, but the moment anything invites us up, we seem to get very religiously concerned about the danger of New Age fantasy? Quote, end quote. Alistair McGrath, again, says there are four aspects of how good and great stories transform us by calling us into the goodness and greatness Great stories tell us that, number one, it is possible for the weak and foolish like us to have a noble calling in a dark world. Number two, our deepest intuitions point us to the true meaning of things. Number three, 
there really is something beautiful and wonderful at the heart of the universe. Number four, this something, capital S, may be found, embraced, and adored. In myth, we are able to see more clearly things normally far too big to consider. How could we grasp issues as large as good and evil, danger and anguish, joy and hope, the supernatural invisible real as it encounters the earthly every day? cannot be expressed in an essay or a lecture. It has to be painted large, as large as the sky, to hold subjects equally as large. Once we see these things for what they really are, we can never shrink back and be the same again. We are stretched to a greater capacity of invisible reality by seeing it and can never return again to a smaller, more constricted place. There are three books I would want all high school or college students to read, among others. George Orwell's 1984, along with Animal Farm, which I think is actually a better book than 1984. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. It would require a good teacher to help sort through all three of these and to draw out the full meaning, especially Abolition of Man. Abolition is not easy reading, but I cite these three because they all have one currently vital message in common. They address the rise of dystopia. What is dystopia? If utopia means a fantasy world of perfection that actually means nowhere, which is what utopia really means, then dystopia means the exact opposite, a real place that is unimaginably bad. There are no utopias. That's why they're called no place. There have been and still are many dystopias, Soviet Russia, Red China, North Korea, to name only a few, these three books address the battle waged against utopia by the every man, every woman of everyday life. Those who lay down their lives exhibit extraordinary courage and self-sacrifice in their war against tyranny. This theme is the reason for the popularity of the most popular films and stories of the past few decades. It is seen in Star Wars, Harry Potter, and now, the most current example, the Hunger Games. They all share in common the struggle against a rising totalitarian cruelty, which is also seen in 1984 and Brave New World. Many people thought that Aldous Huxley was a man of unusual, almost supernatural prophetic insight. So striking were his prognostications, which have become our present reality sex as sheer entertainment, drugs as reality, a passive population easily manipulated by a masterfully manipulating government elite who spins language to destroy all meaning, the reduction of the human being down to a test tube commodity, etc. I don't think he was amazingly insightful. I think he hung around with the master builders of our present culture and simply reported on their plans. Orwell, on the other hand, saw and reported the same thing from the political point of view, the coming fascist thugocracy. Orwell's is a vision of communism-fascism.
Huxley's is a vision of capitalistic technocracy, gone mad with pleasure, leisure, and technology cut loose from all moral and common sense boundaries. Orwell, the slavery from without. Huxley, slavery from within. Orwell, people ruled by force. Huxley, people ruled by addiction. But they both saw the same exact danger rising out of seemingly opposite forms. The dictator thug had been seen before and was not hard to imagine. But no one before our present culture has seen anything quite like Huxley's Brave New World. But it was being planned and implemented all during his lifetime and among all his closest associates. A giant, mindless, happy land of drug-sodded, pleasure-seeking idiots, controlled by a rising, white-coated priesthood of the new religion. True spirituality replaced by scientism, passing itself off as science. The pastor-priest replaced by the psychologist-TV guru. When listing these sort of stories that tell of the little guy battling the giant rising evil, I mentioned already alongside Huxley and Orwell, our more current versions of Star Wars, Harry Potter, Hunger Games, some might want to include also Lord of the Rings and even Narnia as examples of the same category. They do all have in common the little guy battling great oppressive odds, and they have in common, in some people's minds, a category of fantasy fiction. But there's a huge vital difference that takes Lord of the Rings and Narnia into completely different category. When it comes to listing Lewis's abolition of man with Huxley and Orwell, there is this same major difference which separates Lewis from the other two. Orwell and Huxley revealed the problem with no answer. The closest thing to a solution they can offer is the human spirit striving for freedom against tyranny. Lewis explains the problem also, but gives us the real answer. That's a pretty big difference. It's the same difference that places Lord of the Rings in Narnia far above 1984 or Brave New World or The Hunger Games. In Orwell, Huxley, Star Wars, and The Hunger Games, there's only one source of motivation toward battling evil. It's found in our human spirit alone. We fight to be free for the ability for self-determination. And that, of course, is not a bad thing. But is it enough to win? And once we win, if we do, is it enough to go on living? This is reflected in the current political battles in which many a right-winger finds only an opposition to left-wing politics as his platform. Us against them is the fire in their belly. That has been done and redone throughout the long, bloody, sad history of the world, us against them. In the merely human, earthly battle against dystopia, we live, fight, and maybe die, but for a good cause, and we may be remembered by our descendants for as long as they may survive, but that's about it. In the long run, there are no happy endings, only a temporary conquest of evil until the next evil gains new footing and the wars begin again. No matter how much we may enjoy the stories like Star Wars or agree with the dire warnings of Orwell or feel disgusted alarm at the accuracy of Huxley, they all leave us feeling ultimately cold, empty, and hungry for something else. 
if you'll begin to look, and I don't know if you want to, there'll be a whole host of films coming out which take advantage of a society that no longer reads and therefore no longer thinks clearly or deeply. They are enamored by flashy images on the high-tech screen. There's no need for meaningful dialogue or even for a compelling storyline. It will all be of the same ilk. A good underdog battles a bad opponent for the possession of some commodity. Audiences will either ooh and ah over the great special effects or, more likely, be bored because they've pretty much seen it all before. Seeing with and not through the eye, boredom will demand more and more thrilling images. Erotica will become more computer-generated to a degree unknown before, then bloodlust, finally, eventually, the image of the beast. But in the meantime, before it gets to that dire state, still, for the most part, unless there are wonderful exceptions, and there are many working on those wonderful exceptions, which we'll talk about in a later time together, no one will leave the theater feeling called upward. It's doubtful that anyone will be wiping moisture from their eyes unless it's because the 3D glasses hurt their vision. There will be nothing to inspire a vision of reality which arouses the soul to self-sacrifice for a higher, holier cause. Not only will it not nourish, it will drain what life there is away. People will leave the table starving and think they've had a meal. The reason I'm hungry for food is because I was designed for it. The reason I may be thirsty for water is the same. And the reason I feel empty and look for something else when I've finished with these stories is that they are missing a hugely important nutrient, the most important of all, which we also were designed to be nourished by. Just like the original story given in Genesis and restated in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was not the image or the symbol or the big multiplex IMAX 3D screen. In the beginning was the Word. There's no deeply valued image if cut off from deeply valued story. And somehow the human psyche is far more susceptible to being deceived by image than by word. So the word is primary in the Torah, not the image. The story must be rooted in the transcendent holy if its images and symbols are to move us towards light and life. Otherwise, the image becomes a danger instead of an inspiration, an idol instead of a symbol. What separates Lord of the Rings and Narnia from other stories is holy, transcendent, eternal goodness the invisible, holy, eternal, purposeful, personal, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, real, which is above all things and which created all things and did so for the purpose of goodness. And that goodness, because it is rooted in love, which hates all evil and will eventually bring all evil to its end and restore the good forever. That would be enough to move a mouse to roar like a lion, but it gets even better. Because this awesome wonder that spun the worlds into existence for the sake of loving goodness includes you and me and all those we love. 
In fact, we are not merely allowed to be awestruck spectators. We are not even invited in as some possible afterthought, crazy as it may sound. The whole cosmic event is somehow, to some degree, about us. So that's what's missing in most stuff and is present in Lord of the Rings and Narnia and thankfully in others. That's quite a significant difference, don't you think? You may notice I've not firmly planted Harry Potter completely in one camp or the other. The reason for that is too large to address here, and I will let it hang in the air for now in hopes of addressing it more in detail in a future study that has to sit completely on its own because it's too detailed to mention here. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why then would I ever want every high school or college student to have a grasp of these original three books that I first listed? Well, it has to do with watching over your heart. 1984, Brave New World, and finally, most importantly, The Abolition of Man, because Orwell gives us a clear warning of totalitarian politics, Huxley of totalitarian free enterprise, and Lewis explains what has occurred in Western education that paves the way for both of these evils to emerge and thrive, but then offers the antidote to that poison. It's not an easy read, as I said, and would require an entire study in itself to come anywhere close to doing it justice, but I want to try to underscore a few of the most vital points from the abolition of man in the context of healing the imagination, and having a whole imagination. Remember that in our previous studies on the imagination, we stressed that the true imagination refers to far more than merely the picture-making faculty of the brain. The true imagination includes the entire inner life of a person, that which moves him or her in the course of their life. It's the energy coming up into the consciousness which rises out of the unconscious. It's the voice of your heart and ultimately controls behavior, which determines your destiny. So the warning to watch over our heart with all diligence, for out of it issue the forces which determine our life course. Proverbs chapter 4. How do we watch over the heart? In the abolition of man, Lewis does not preach a sermon. God is not directly referenced in the text. He's seeking to expose a trend which was strong in the early years of the 20th century and is now the dominant force in so-called education. That is what Lewis refers to as, quote, removing the organ but still demanding the function. We have created men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings to be fruitful. Is there anything more comical in a black, sick kind of way than the university lecture on ethics? When Jeffrey Dahmer explained why he felt no restraint in raping, murdering, and finally cannibalizing his victims, he simply explained that he was acting out what he had been taught all through his entire school career. The survival of the fittest meant that he's the stronger therefore had the right of power to take what he wanted from those who were weaker. In what possible sense was he, quote, wrong, according to the pseudo-intellectuals who were so shocked at his bloodlust? 
So it is with the ongoing stream of mind-numbing evil paraded daily in every newsroom in this country, killing, raping, beating, things too terrible to write here, often engineered by many under the age of 20, and we wonder. We demand different behavior based on what? Lewis goes on to explain that, quote, no justification of virtue will enable a man to be virtuous. Without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless in the face of the human organism. He means that no amount of lecturing or sermonizing, no amount of passing of information about right and wrong, even true information, from brain to brain, will form in a boy or a girl the power needed in the face of temptation to do the right thing. He or she will be powerless in the face of the, quote, animal organism. If all he or she has is a mind full of right information, but a body full of hormonal energy, or a desire for conquest of others, or greed for ill-gotten gain, or you name it, what's missing? The chest. What stands guard over the arid desert of the informed brain and the wild erotic jungle of the body is the treasure house of the chest, the heart, that faculty of the human person which holds truth, but holds it so mentally clear and emotionally precious that it decides the final choice in the face of the temptation to do evil. Lewis goes on, Without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against the organism. How are the emotions properly trained? Lewis refers to the Tao to refer to the principle of ultimate reality that leaves no room for opinion. This Chinese term literally means all that really is. Lewis says those who argue against the Tao are like branches fighting against the tree they grow out of. If they succeed in destroying the Tao, they have committed suicide. This is exactly what nihilism is, to self-annihilate. This is the force behind the bloodlust and debauchery that has become the entertainment of the West. In the field of education, journalism, and politics. If it appears that commentators' heads have grown, Lewis says it's only the illusion caused by the total shrinkage of their chests, not the growth of their heads. They have thought themselves into imbecility and have lost the good of reason. So when 9-11 destroyed over 3,000 lives, most so-called news broadcasters could not bring themselves to call the murderers terrorists. As has been cited by others, nowadays there's nothing anywhere so evil or so stupid that there's not some college professor somewhere willing to make a case for it. Lewis says he would rather play cards against a man who is an outspoken skeptic but who was raised to believe that gentlemen do not cheat than to be playing against a high-sounding moral philosopher who was raised by cheaters. What does he mean? Well, he means that how we are trained not how we are taught, makes all the difference in who and what we truly become. Teach or train. How is it that Joseph 
not only refused to be seduced by Potiphar's wife, but did so consistently for days upon days when it would have been easy to give in and seemingly safer for him to do so. It was not because he was a Jew trained in Torah educationally only. Torah had not been given. Yet Joseph says clearly when his temptress pressed him the last time, No one in all this house is greater than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this wickedness and sin against God? Genesis 39, verse 9. He did not merely quote religious dogma from his head. He spoke with a deep, emotionally charged conviction rooted in revealed truth, which he learned in the warmth of his family from his parents. He grew up hearing the stories of his grandfather, Abraham, Isaac, and under the arm of his father, Jacob. Before the giving of the law, the people of Abraham knew what it meant to worship and serve the living God. It was their relationship with God himself demonstrated in their family and cultural lives that formed Joseph as well as many other God-loving Hebrews before the Torah was given. Joseph would not be listing mere information from his brain while checking with his body and weighing the one against the other, trying to decide which way to go. He did not need to know what to do. Instead, he was going to do what he knows. There was no decision needed in the face of temptation because that had long ago been settled in him, not merely by teaching, but by the training of his inner life. This included, but went beyond mere information into inner transformation. The very cells of his body were trained that his body belonged only to God and eventually to the wife that God would give him. The wife of another man belonged only to her husband. So there was not the burning fire of potential lust set ablaze in Joseph, which is so painfully common in our common culture. What was set ablaze in Joseph was the awareness that he was being pressed to betray his father in heaven and his fathers on the earth and all that they held precious. It was not a contest. It is the difference between trying to sort out how to know what to do versus simply automatically doing what you already know. And it is the difference between mere knowledge versus deep, intimate knowing of Hebrew union, spirit, soul, and body with God. Joseph had not been merely taught. His entire being had been trained This is the meaning of train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's grown, he will not depart from it. We are not training up our children, and they are departing as soon as they reach college age, because we have not formed their chests. We have only informed their minds and allowed their bodies to develop whatever appetites their untrained minds pursue. And when we consider the power of image in video, plus the additional force of story, plus the additional force of music, plus the additional force of electronic brainwave influence from screens and electronics, the constant outcome is easy to foresee. Joseph did not dwell on what he did not want, but he dwelt on what he longed for. 
He did not grow up thinking only in the negative. I'm afraid to sin. I fear I will fail. I'm, I'm afraid if I'm tempted, I'll fall. No, he grew up thinking, my grandfathers and my father know the living God and walk with him, and I will follow him too. He came to this conclusion based on his relationship with them, their relationship with God, and the way they put into his heart images of their relationship by telling stories around the family campfires night after night. This not only informed the mind, but it grew the heart. It awakened passion, hope, holy imagination, desire. All this was present in Joseph when he was confronted with temptation. Emotion on its own is not strong enough to protect us from evil, but when truth awakens longing and hope of having that longing fulfilled, then the combination of truth with deeply felt emotion produces invulnerability to temptation. How can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? The answer is, he cannot. And so he did not. This kind of heart strengthening is spelled out in Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ear to my words. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will use stories and illustrations, the Holman translation says. I will tell of mysteries from the past, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength by the wonderful things he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob. You get that? Jacob would have confirmed that testimony. How does he establish a testimony in Jacob? It means that Jacob didn't have a Bible to open up to. He opened up the pages of his life's experience with God. And Jacob told his son's what God had done in his life. That was the beginning of the testimony in Jacob, which he commanded to be taught to his children so that the generation to come might know them, who would rise up and tell their children so that they might set their hope in God and therefore not forsake the works of God, but keep his commandments that they may not be as their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation that did not prepare their hearts and whose spirit was not steadfast toward God. Do you notice how do you prepare your heart to be steadfast toward God in the face of opposition to God? All that just went before in the previous seven verses. They did not prepare their hearts they did not feed on these realities on both the mental and the emotional and the spiritual level in the communion of their relationships with each other. When we say we are not to be led by our emotions or other statements like that, we're speaking of a valid truth to be controlled by mere emotion, feeling cut loose from wisdom and reality is at at best to be immature, and at worst to be mentally ill. But this warning to not be controlled by emotion has been sorely misunderstood by many to mean that emotion itself doesn't even matter. 
and that in turn has come to mean that living spiritually is living strictly from the neck up under a cold, calculated, legalistic obedience. This turns kids away from the very truth parents long for them to know. Passion is vital for truth to get into the heart. The very word passion is used to refer to both holy and unholy flame. If there is no flame for truth, then the flame of lust is already there, burning in its place. It takes a greater flame to subdue the lower-level flame of bodily appetites. Fear of hell is not the flame I'm speaking of, but the flame of a heart filled with the vision of God in His glory and holiness, inviting us to Himself in love. Now, obedience is vital. But if it is interpreted in the cold terms I just described, it will produce no life and in many cases will become anti-life that results in a dark overreaction in opposition to what is perceived as just cold, dead, lifeless religiosity. The very opposite of the obedience that was hoping to be communicated. Joseph not only embraced his father's relationship with God, but maintained it in the face of huge temptation. How? His heart had been well fed. What does that mean? It means he had been given truth, but in the context of family love, exciting purpose, an emotionally exhilarating sense of belonging that fueled a vision for his destiny. I just described what should be the function of every local church body every church assembly. Love, welcoming, exciting purpose, and a sense of destiny. That also, of course, should happen in the family. It should happen first in the family. But God sets the lonely into families, and there he breaks their chains. That's what the church is supposed to be. But I digress to some degree, although it's not a digression. Joseph had a chest, a treasure chest, his chest, that which stood between his body and his brain. He did not have a mere mind filled with thou shalt nots, with all due respect to the statements of the commandments. I'm not dis dishonoring that. But he had more than the mere state statement of those laws. They hadn't even been given yet, although it is true that the base, basic fundamental laws of the, of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, was present in the lives of the patriarchs because they knew God. See, they knew God more than they knew law, and as a result of knowing God, they knew how to live and function. But he, Joseph had more than thou shalt not. And also, he had more than a body filled with desire in opposition to the prohibitions of the scriptures, of the, of the law. He had a heart, a chest where the truth in the mind and the desires of the body came together and met, forming a union of controlled, reasoned passion. Now, did you get that? He had all the normal passions of any man. He had all the emotions more emotions, actually, than than uh, the average person based on what he'd suffered, which we'll talk more about later. But he had this strong, strong understanding of purpose and identity 
which was more than intellectual. It was more than, it was more than uh, family pride. It was rooted in the family's rootedness in the reality of a relationship with Yahweh. And Joseph didn't live off the faith of his grandfather and his father. He lived off the revelation of their relationship that brought him into his own relationship. Joseph would not forfeit his future for a momentary pleasure, a thought that is almost incomprehensible to most people in our generation. And it began in my generation, so I'm not speaking down to anybody. To put off a, a, a present gratification because you're more concerned with the future than you are the present and more concerned with other greater uh, treasures than your own pleasure. Joseph's mind informed him correctly. His body had long been trained by that mind to not be given dominance. And holding these two in proper tension was the heart, the central inner force made up of intellect, will, and well-fed, healthy emotion. This is the heart that the Bible is talking about when it talks about loving God with all your heart, seeking God with all your heart. It's not just talking about some little circle in uh, a bullseye image where, you know, the, the smallest part of us is our heart. Our heart is our whole true being. And emotion, of course, is a strong part of that heart. It's only a part, but it's a large and important, vital part. And that emotion is heard in Joseph's response to his temptress. Notice the way he forms his words to her. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? No, you know how we hear it? You know how we read it? No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, his wife. How then could I do this wicked thing and sin against God? Picture the scene, unless you have ruined your healthy imagination of it by watching some of the amazingly bad Bible movies that are on TV now and then. You cannot imagine Joseph saying this woodenly. The emotion is erupting out of the truth. And the truth is precious to him because it was communicated not only to his mind, but lovingly imparted into his inner being. But having been formed in him, in the bosom of family life and love, what if you didn't have such family life? What if you didn't have such love? We're going to talk about that later. But Joseph not only loves the truth, but loves all that is related to it. Now try to get this. Maybe I should have gone and mentioned this now. Many of us didn't grow up in a family that came anywhere close to imparting to us what I'm describing. I, uh, My mother loved the Lord, but she did not know how to communicate these things. No one had taught her. Uh, my father was, as many of you know who've heard me for years, he was very broken. And, and very badly wounded by the church and by religion in general. And so uh, that added to the fact that I grew up uh, with sexual molestation from, from neighborhood encounters. Uh, certainly didn't lay any positive foundation in me for overcoming later temptation. 
But God began to build into me these principles as if I did have the foundation laid. The Lord, as I, as I turned my heart toward God, God, God called out to me. It always begins with God, it never begins with you. You don't ever seek God. God seeks you. He chose you. You didn't choose him. You would have never pursued him had he not pursued you first. That's a very comforting truth, by the way. It means that he chose you. He pursued you. He's still choosing you, still pursuing you, or you wouldn't even be listening. No matter how much you failed, no matter how much you faltered, no matter how much you've disappointed yourself, you've never disappointed God because God has no illusions about us. He who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. And so God called out to me as a boy. I responded. And from that moment forward, God began to build into me the building blocks that I'm describing that Joseph had given to him. The difference between me and Joseph, among many, many, many others, is that Joseph didn't have to remove any garbage. He he got the foundation laid clean. I had to remove a lot of garbage. Now try to get this. This is very important. I love my wife. I love the word of God. I love the command of God to remain faithful to my wife and to no other. But in obeying that command, I also grow in deeper and deeper love for my wife. So the two undergird each other. I obey because I love. I love because I obey. I'm faithful to Mary because I'm faithful to God. I'm faithful to God because I'm faithful to Mary. One strengthens the other over and over. You could use this same scenario for many other examples of how love and truth are inseparable. The more we love, the more faithful we are. The more faithful we are, the more we love. This is where the passion came from in Joseph to finally end the struggle with Potiphar's wife by turning and fleeing from her presence. Don't picture him as some weak-kneed little boy who just didn't know what to do, so he ran. That's as far from what really happened as you could imagine. He did not calculate what might occur in retaliation when he ran from her. He didn't think, well, you know, this could cost me. This was not a deciding factor in his decision. He was passionate about maintaining one thing and one thing only, a holy passion for the God of his fathers. In the short run, it cost him. But in the long run, it was the fulfillment of his very destiny. Now, I had to have this truth built into me, and I wish I had had it built into me when I was Joseph's age here, because he was probably in his mid-twenties. But no, I'm saddened when I remember the spiritual temperature of my early Christian experience during the Jesus Movement days of the early 1970s. I remember going to Christian concerts to hear great, great bands of that day, like Andre Crouch and the Disciples, Second Chapter of Acts and others. What I'm about to tell here is no reflection on these Christian bands, but on the impotent influence of Christian culture on my generation. We had all, for the most part, grown up in church. But when the emotion of the music moved us to sway and pray and cry and be all religiously stirred up, we left the concerts and engaged in immoral passions with the same fervor. It didn't seem to matter if we were stirred to worship Jesus one minute and bail the next. 
Our bodies followed our minds to the concert, and then our minds followed our bodies to sin. We were people without chests. We had no guiding ultimate passion that kept secondary emotions in their proper place. We had no sustaining vision of our true identities in Christ that caused us to treat our partner with appropriate honor and purity. We had no sense of destiny, so we wanted what we wanted in the moment and to hell with what heaven said about it. And I have lived to see the long-term effects, terrible effects, of that sort of short-sighted lust done in the very shadow of a worship experience. And this is still happening, maybe worse now than before. The hearts are not set aflame with the vision of God, so the so-called worship experience stirs up more of the lower passions than the higher ones. Christian music and social gatherings become an aphrodisiac. Lyrics are more about the human soulish elements, how I feel about God rather than focusing on the living God himself. Rather than a spring of life rising up, it becomes a mere whirlpool of human erotic energy pouring down. The chest shrinks, and we are left with a mind more stimulated by the images and sentiments of the world, the flesh, and the devil, aimed at making us nothing more than our body, reducing us to our animal passions. In time, temptation is no longer a battle, not because we have overcome it, but because it has overcome us, and to a degree that we no longer even see the danger of sin. We simply live on a low level of sinful urges and don't even know how far down we've fallen. Discernment fades. Lifestyles become godless. The fruit of our lives becomes rotten, and we wonder why Christianity doesn't produce what it claims it has to offer. How do we keep the holy heart burning in the chest? Psalm 78 tells us that a testimony was established for Jacob. The story of his grandfather and father, which he passed down to Joseph. We've talked about that previously. This testimony of his father was the word of God. Joseph didn't know it was going to be one day the opening stories of what would be the Bible it was the word of God given to Abraham, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. And Joseph's heart was set aflame to believe that same God of his fathers would be his God. And so God was faithful to Joseph through all that he suffered. How did Joseph maintain his faith with no Bible, no fellowship, no cultural support, and even occult sexuality and perverse paganism all around him? Well, he had heard from God as a boy. Now, let me stress again, there's those of you listening to this who did not have Joseph's family. You didn't even have your neighbor's good family. You maybe came from a very broken family or no family. That doesn't matter. David said, when my father and mother throw me away, the Lord will pick me up. And the Lord did. It says of uh, Jabez in First Chronicles chapter 4, his mother named him Jabez, which means sorrowful. All it says of Jabez is two verses. I think it's chapter 4, verse 9. Jabez was named sorrowful because his mother named him that. Evidently, her husband had abandoned him or some other tragedy had brought him into the world. 
He didn't want to be named sorrowful. So he cried out to God and said, I don't want to have a heritage of sorrow. I don't want to just be limited to my parents. Please bless me. And the Lord granted him his request. That's all it says. It doesn't matter if you had this foundation laid that Joseph had. I didn't have the foundation laid that Joseph had. God spent years and years not only laying the foundation in me, but purging out all the bad stuff that thankfully Joseph did not have to purge out. But the end result is still the same. God brings forth his good purposes that in spite of the evil that was meant against me, God turns it for my good. We'll talk more about that here shortly. Joseph had heard from God as a boy. He held on to that word through the trials that he faced. Now, how did he hold on to it? Well, first, he fed on the stories he grew up with. If you didn't have stories to grow up with, you can start growing your stories now. Testimonies from other people who you are related to. I'll explain more about that shortly. He received a vision for his own life out of those testimonies. Number two, he received a vision for his own life. What has God shown you about your life? Now, you've got to understand, Joseph didn't have any big concepts of his future. He knew, all he knew was the vision he'd been given of the bowing sheaves. Sometimes in our overblown culture, you know, everybody gets prophesied over and they're all going to be great evangelists. They're all going to win millions of people. They're all going to have a big church. It's all going to be big. It all comes from a, 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 a an infection in the psyche that comes from Babylon. What if your prophecy is, you know, you're going to have a difficult time, but God is with you. You're going to go through difficult times, but he who has begun a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. You're gonna you're gonna have a, a small influence, but it'll be it'll be golden in the eyes of God. You're not gonna win many people, but those that you touch will be greatly blessed and glorify God and be uh, grateful to you in eternity. I mean, what has God showed you about who you're to be and what you're to be? You know, one of the most difficult things in my life is I was well known and highly. Uh, sought after in my 20s, which was very detrimental for me. Uh, I was on college campuses. I was in every, almost every state in the Union, Canada, Europe, Middle East, uh, all before I was 30, and my character was a shambles. And uh, then when the Lord brought me through the healing process that he took me through in my middle years, I came out the other side. I was not well-known. I was not sought after. I didn't have recording contracts. I was not in Nashville all the time. Uh, my songwriting uh, was not highly acclaimed. All kinds of ego uh, wounds, which are good wounds. The ego needs wounding. And I learned to humble myself and take upon me the purpose and vision God had really given me. And I had to go before the Lord and ask him, what is it you intended me to do that I didn't bother to hear you tell me you intended me to do? Because I was so busy out doing what everybody said you intended me to do. Well, that's a short version of a long story. But the point is, Joseph, let's go back over it. Number one, he fed on the stories he grew up hearing. 
you don't have a father that gave you those stories. You've got spiritual fathers who can give you stories. You don't have one, go find one. There's there's older men and women around you somewhere that you can draw from and, and uh, draw from their stories. Draw from my story. I'm telling you what God faithfully did for me, and he is faithful to do it for you. I'm not just giving you information. I'm imparting spiritual DNA into you by speaking this word. See, the word, sperma, seed, has to do with imparting of spiritual DNA. You're receiving that right now. Hook into what I'm talking about and use it as the story that lays the foundation for your future. God has been faithful to me. He's been faithful to me over and over and over in the face of my failures and in the face of the failures of those around me and in the face of daunting resistances from the demonic and from human evil. God has been faithful to me and he is still faithful. And when I'm in the most pain and feel the most disappointed and feel the most let down by life, that's when I shout the loudest. God is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my father, I trust him. He has begun a good work in me. will finish it. How do I know? Because I got all I got to do to, to be able to deal with the future is look behind me and I get filled with hope. Because of what he's done. Oh, I hadn't always had that attitude. I used to look behind me and just see all the stuff that didn't happen the way I wanted it to. But my ability to glorify him and give him honor and praise is not because everything behind me turned out rosy according to my plans. It's that now I've been given eyes to see with instead of through. And when I look back and see what I came through and see what God actually purposed in it and what he's done in me, then my whole attitude becomes one of gratitude and thankfulness and faith and trust and hope. And biblical hope is a guaranteed future, not a I hope so future. Okay, so let's go back over these one, one more time. He, he fed on the stories he grew up hearing. I still want to talk more about that here in just a minute. Number two, he received a vision for his own life from God. Not from the stories. The stories inspired him to then receive from God what God had for him. Number three, he trusted God in the outworking of that vision when he began to go through his suffering. Psalm 105, verse 17 through 19. He sent Joseph before them, who was sold for a slave, whose feet they hurt with fetters. His soul was laid in irons. Until the time came for God's word to Joseph to be fulfilled, that word tried him. When it says Joseph's soul entered into iron, there are several ways to interpret this. The first most obvious level is that they put him in irons, most likely with a chain and an iron collar on his neck. The second is that this terrible experience caused a breaking in Joseph's soul. His soul became bound by his experience. The third level is that in that suffering, his inner resolve became like iron. It's usually our own lack of experience of trusting God that may cause us to think that Joseph became terribly disillusioned or angry or bitter and near despair before the word of the Lord to him came to pass. I don't think that's true to this story. Of course, he's human and suffered on the level he endured 
uh, and that kind of suffering is potentially embittering, but it doesn't hold true to the story or the life of Joseph to think that he was merely a naive youth living a spoiled life with his family who suddenly betrayed his brothers, was sold into slavery, became bitter to the point of despair, then emerges as second to the ruler of the most powerful empire in the world, all while honoring God in everything he did. No, the early vision becomes his life's focus. When it began to be tested, and he with it, he maintained his trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This God was now his God. And throughout his suffering, with no cultural support, no Christian music or radio or bookstores, no fellowship, no affection or warmth, really, from anyone, he remained faithful to the God who was remaining faithful to Joseph. If the iron went first into his soul as pain, it finally became iron in his soul for righteousness. So it was no wonder when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, his response was what it was. He was iron inside against anything that would dishonor his God and ruin his destiny. So let's let's look at some questions. What have you been taught about God and by who? Number two, what do you believe you are called to do and to be? And being produces doing. Doing doesn't produce being. Being is rooted in relationship, not in activity. Number three, how are you maintaining that vision once you have it? What do you do to focus on it, to feed it, to make sure that it stays in line and grows and matures. Number four, how do you behave when all seems opposite to that vision? Number five, how much of your vision has been purged by the things you have suffered so that you're not just pursuing a vision, you're pursuing the Lord, and the vision is only a tool to keep you on track? Number six, where is your trust in God and how is it measured by your attitude when you go through the process? Where, what's the trust level? By the process, I mean the process Joseph went through. On whatever degree God puts you through that process or allows you to pass through that process where the, you're, you go into the iron until the iron goes into you. Where's your trust? In our next session together, we're gonna, we're gonna take a detailed look at the emotional world that Joseph must have lived in and how all those, how those emotions were worked out as his faith carried him through the process. His emotions were all present and they were intense, but they were under the rule of his spirit, which was under the rule of the Holy Spirit in faith. It's going to take a whole session for us to unpack all that. So, Father, we thank you now in Jesus' name that you are helping us face where we are in this. Let us become men and women whose chests are filled with the treasury of a life of both 
intellectual and emotional um, stability rooted in you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.